Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Free trade isn't exactly free in Canada. The book, Booze, Cigarettes, and Constitutional Dust-Ups, Canada's Quest for Interprovincial Free Trade, explores the provincial trade rights and how we can improve interprovincial free trade. Meet Ryan Manucha, a Toronto lawyer, Frederick Sheldon Fellow at Harvard University, C.D. Howe Institute author, and the latest winner of the annual Donner Prize, which recognizes the best public policy book by a Canadian. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us, and congrats. Thank you so much, Michael. It's an honor to be here. Great to see you. So why write the book? Oh, it, the, the book starts with uh, the journey of, of what is Canada. And I was really interested in the topics of internal uh, international trade. Uh, my, my origins start with international trade, uh, trade law and policy. Spent some time at the Canadian Embassy down in D.C. Spent a lot of time researching how the WTO works. And then what happened was there was a moment in time where British Columbia and Alberta were getting into an interprovincial trade spat. And it, it was just, it was fascinating to watch. It was about pipelines and essentially it came down to pipelines and Alberta uh, coming back and saying, well, we're not gonna provide access to BC wine in our, in our, in our liquor stores. And I was just captured by it because I was like, what, well, what, are, what are the mechanisms we have to resolve this? How, did the, how does this dispute come about? And how are we gonna resolve it in, in what we would call sort of, um, sort of civil and diplomatic fashion? Uh, in the international arena, you'll take a, a, a case before the WTO and Canada, or, you know, you might negotiate beforehand in Canada. What do we have? And I discovered this amazing institution that we've created called the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, which is a venue to resolve um, uh, internal trade disputes uh, without getting into acrimonious trade battles that we saw actually in Canada back in the 70s and late 60s when you know, there was the, the famous one is the chicken and the egg war where you know borders were shut down to poultry poultry products and eggs were literally rotting in, in fields because they had nowhere to go and um so so fast forward you know learning about that sort of that spat and, and the framework around it but then trying to figure out well what's the story how did we get to the point where canada created essentially the first ever domestic trade court uh, this is a very unique system that we've we've endowed ourselves and and how did we get to the point where we even needed this um, so that was, that was the journey to the book. And so the book looks at uh, internal trade from pre-confederation to the present, sort of what are the lessons we can extract and, and, and kind of where are we going? So you sort of touched on the booze component to the title of the book. What of the cigarette side of things? I, I was walking down the street with a friend of mine in, in Toronto not too long ago. He's a cigarette smoker and some guy was walking in the opposite direction. And my buddy went, no, thanks. I'm like, excuse me, what was that all about? He said, oh, he flashed me a pack of cigarettes. He's trying to sell me illegal cigarettes. And I had yeah. no idea. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, so the, the, the booze part is definitely, well, uh, you know, it's very familiar to folks who watch internal trade, the internal trade file, most recently with Gerard Camo and trying to bring uh, a bunch of beer back from neighboring Quebec into New Brunswick. Um, the cigarettes has another dimension. So the, the story of internal trade is the story of, of products, and cigarettes have their own chapter. Um, there was a, a dispute that, um, so Canada's got the internal free trade clause, so we call section 121, and says all articles, if I'm paraphrasing, all articles manufactured should be you know, allowed to flow essentially across one border to the other, from, from one side of the border to the other, free. Um, and so a lot of Canadians take this to mean there should be internal free trade. And so this question was debated in the context of, of literally um, cigarettes in in, uh, in in New Brunswick back many many uh, back in the 40s 
And it was it was essentially the the, the real meat of that, that, that uh, debate was whether or not, and this is when Canada was still wrestling with jurisdictional boundaries, but could um, the province institute the sale a sales tax on tobacco products? At the time, huge percentages of government revenue were derived from tobacco, like federal revenues were derived from tobacco taxes. And so the provinces were essentially saying, oh, what if we, can we get our share of this pie here when it comes to addictive uh, um, substances like cigarettes and, you know, that's a source of recurring revenue and could really help us fund their projects. But it did come down to an element of whether or not that trampled upon um, the concept of free trade in Canada. So it, whether it, it, cigarettes, alcohol, then we've got, you know, margarine and butter, you know, um, for a while, uh, there were mandates on on the color of margarine. Whether or not you could even buy margarine and, and consume it, um, these are are products. But if you think about it, it, it impacts our ability to consume and, and to actually uh, go across the border and, and purchase and, and 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 make those like uh, discretionary acquisitions. But yeah, no. So so whether it's that, whether it's um, you know, the purchase of services, uh, you know, the accounting professions uh, were using the Canadian Free Trade Agreements uh, dispute resolution mechanism to essentially be able to provide uh, 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 accounting services in another province. And the argument was, you know, what, this is what, this is uh, trampling upon our ability to trade, trade freely. And, and, you know, you guys have agreed to these conditions under the CFTA where there's, there's essentially labor mobility. And obviously there's, there's lots of, protected interests, you know, it's, it's free trade is also the story of, you know, it's one, one interest group being pitted against another. When you increase the uh, maximum build height uh, with timber, it's, you know, you're pitting forestry against cement and steel. And so it's interest groups sort of uh, being confronted with these, these trade-offs in this pursuit of, of GDP maximizing growth through uh, trade liberalization. Tell me more about that trade liberalization, because you sort of touched on the, the point that we've seen a remarkable evolution of it from the 1970s to the present. How would you describe the current state of internal free trade between the provinces? I mean, when back in, you know, back in the day, 1867, when they inserted Section 121, the concept of a trade barrier was sort of very, we'll call it compared to how we understand it now, quite rudimentary. It was about tariffs and, uh, and um, customs duties. It, it had not entered into the minds of, of economists that a trade barrier could also include, you know, technical barriers to trade. You know, you need to fumigate your, your fish products or, or, or you need to do a secondary inspection on, on the apples that might cross over. But one can see regulations imposed on goods or services as being an indirect way to accomplish the same thing that a tariff is doing, which is making it difficult for a foreign good to access the domestic market. Um, so one of the big things that shifted probably around the 50s and 60s was this understanding that, especially through what was going on internationally, the, you know, post-World War II, the, you know, you had the Bretton Woods Agreements, you had the, you know, these multilateral organizations coming to, coming to bear, early formation of the WTO, and a growing understanding that a trade barrier was more than just a tariff. And that's one thing that um, the, uh, you know, the way that jurisprudence works is, you know, you have case law by judges being kind of con considered back in the day and then, and, and then modern, you know, thought, thinking, progressing. And so in the most recent decision with Gerard Mo, I think there was finally a true appreciation for the fact that a trade barrier in, in modern sense can be more than just, you know, 7% on, on on electric vehicle cars. You know, it's, it's, it's also, oh, 
well, you know, what portion of that electric vehicle needs to be manufactured um, in in the province of in which it's being purchased? You know, the, all these other non uh, non obvious rules. So I think since the 70s, there's a, uh, an ascendant appreciation for how uh, the regulatory state can create trade barriers. And so then what are your devices to resolve them? Um, you know, it's the, the judicial test for Section 121 has, has increasingly sort of accounted for this, but it's also the CFTA, this infrastructure. So the CFTA is really, it's a 25-year story, a little bit more than 25 years. Um, CFTA came about in 2017, but it actually existed under the AI Agreement on Internal Trade starting in 95. And um, so we've Canada's, you know, project with an internal trade agreement has almost lasted, you know, we're almost at 30 years now. And what's been really cool about the story is even in that 30 years, this agreement in the most recent round of amendments, we had this, what's called the, the RCT, which is a venue for technical policy specialists. So most recently, you know, one example was this, it's used to reform Canada's building codes because this harmonious building codes, you know, 13 different building codes creates friction, creates trade barriers. And some, some, there are some justified reasons for having discrepancy in building codes and some less so. And so it's a venue for uh, policy specialists to come together and iron out, okay, well, what, what needs to be true and what can be more flexible? And that's something that's totally unique to Canada. I think something that really needs to be appreciated in the span of uh, internal trade history. When trade rules or regulations are revised, it pits two provinces against each other. And you're advising that we need to take another look at how we approach making trade-offs. Why? So, I, I mean, there was this um, uh, a piece that I, I, I worked on with Professor Trevor Tuma at the University of Calgary talking about this concept of mutual recognition, which is, in, in essence, um, if, if the rules are good enough in another province, they're good enough for us. So, for example, in British Columbia, if you get your car inspected and then you decide to move to Alberta, you know, the idea being like Alberta will respect the inspection of a British Columbia inspector and not require a reinspection when you bring that and essentially import that car into Alberta. Um, and not only does it reduce duplicative, you know, processing fees, you want, you can think like, okay, now I don't have to pay for two inspections. I'm only paying for one because it's being respected. But, you know, take that kind of concept and apply it to labor, the labor market where you have folks who are, you know, designated under or and, and certified under a provincial body and province in, in Alberta and then, or let's take gas fitters because gas fitters is a, is a complicated one that's often the source of friction. Gas fitters trained out on the East Coast trying to move to BC and BC state perhaps not respecting the gas fitting license or, or there, there being some dis disharmony between the gas fitting licensure system between the two jurisdictions and and requiring in essence requiring recertification reprocessing um and and this being a huge source of gain and in this paper with professor Toom, it was found that if, if a province essentially says you know what we're going to recognize others other provinces whether it comes to goods or services that province who mutually recognizes those other rules will stand to gain even if they don't do it with any other jurisdiction if you unilaterally recognize the rules of another jurisdiction and especially when it comes to professional services um you will see market you know the the, the study shows the um uh, gain growth gains from doing so obviously there's the countervailing consideration which is the disruption that it'll cause to the goods or services uh, manufacturers in your in your province um that's the story of, of interprovincial trade that uh, free trade around the globe is the disruption that it causes so the, you know it's it's 
you know, in the post-Cold um, War era of, you know, globalization, there was this ascendant movement to, oh, let's, let's multilateral, let's, let's globalize the, the world's economy. You know, there should be no friction whatsoever. And over the past, let's call it 10 years, and I think Donald Trump in the U.S. really kind of, you know, was certainly made it more evident to folks is, is maybe free trade shouldn't be the ambition. And even in Canada, we have Minister Freeland with the, the French Shoring Doctrine. The idea being like, look, we're gonna we're gonna liberalize trade, but only with counterparties who seem to meet us halfway or partial partial way. We're not we're not gonna go out and, and kind of grab globalization for the sake of globalization. The last time you and I spoke, uh, mid twenty twenty, you had been urging Canada's policymakers to improve the Canada Free Trade Agreement by calling for key reforms to the CFTA's dispute settlement rules. Have we seen any improvements since the start of the pandemic? To the dispute settlement rules, I, there, there is, there is, there are, there is movement. Nothing has uh, perhaps been actually acted upon, but I think there's, there's actually increasing momentum. We saw it with most uh, federal budget in 2023, um, a, a clear mandate being issued um, that th there, we, there is a desire to see change, and it's uh, there's uh, in the post-pandemic world of, of seeking growth where we can find it. And in this world where we're seeing like, you know, isolationism on the rise, um, maybe, and, and, I, and, and in my book, I, I go into, you know, um, the loss of imperial preferences in the 1840s with the repeal of the corn laws, meaning that Canada didn't have privileged access to the British market. And then the abrogation of the U.S. Uh, from the reciprocity treaty uh, just after the U.S. Civil War in both instances. So twice in about 25 years, both within the lifespans of those drafting the Confederation there was this retrenchment and Canada having to react to fickle foreign trading partners. And I think post-pandemic, with the rise of isolationism, supply chain being in huge disruption and a, a search for growth, I think there's there's a growing consensus that internal trade is one of those things that's fully within the power of, of uh, Canadian actors and that it comes down to mustering. Uh, and it takes, it's not an insignificant amount of um, political will uh, from the centre to actually act on, on those initiatives. I think that the, the motions are in place over the dispute resolution mechanism in particular, um, you know, when it was first created in 95, there was this, oh, fear, like it's the classic like floodgates fear. Oh, once we have this, it's suddenly we're going to be inundated with claims. We're going to be in court all the time. And in 25 years, there were 13 cases under the AIT, eight, 13 cases, um, two of which went on to appeal. And so hard to believe that this floodgate argument is uh, is um, is is there. Um, so you know maybe on the margin we can tinker with the rules that we have. We talked about in 2020. Um, without that fear that something's going to that there's going to be a spike. And at the end of the day, it's fully within the province's purview to say, okay, you know we tried it. Something something went already, and 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 you know let's let's revise our approach here. Um, but what I do appreciate is there's been lots of hard work by folks who have specialized in internal trade um, over the years. There were 14 protocols of amendment under the AIT. The CFTA has seen, and especially with that table, the RCT table, where um, uh, federal, provincial, and territorial uh, subject matter experts come together on whether it be like organic labeling or, or um, downfill reg regulations for downfill products or first aid kits. Like there is, and that's where the, the the bulk of the work is going to get done, but a dispute resolution mechanism is important to keep uh, governments accountable to their commitments under the CFTA. And if it's a very one-sided system, it's hard to see it as serving that purpose. 
You mentioned that in a post-pandemic world, we're uh, all searching for growth, but you calculated that Canada's GDP would grow 4% by eliminating internal trade barriers. What are the barriers to eliminating trade barriers today? Uh, there, I mean, there, there are a number of them. I think, I mean, one of it, it one of the issues is um, it's from a practical political perspective, if you're eliminating a trade barrier, you, you're probably disrupting something for a stakeholder who's benefiting from that trade barrier. And so it's playing into um, the political calculus that many leaders and many parties have to, have to think about when they're making their decisions and thinking about its impact on their on their constituencies. Um, part of it is internal liberalizing internal trade barriers. Like it's a it's a horizontal issue. So liberalization will hit a whole bunch of different ministries at once. So if you're trying to liberalize, um, you know, let, let's talk let's talk um, uh, agricultural products, right? Like if, if you are the minister for intergovernmental affairs for your province, but and so maybe you have the mandate for internal trade liberalization. But the issue that that you're trying to liberalize fun falls under the umbrella of, of perhaps your minister of agriculture um so, someone else not you and so you have to work with uh you and your and your and your folks have to work with um an entirely different set of departments or even that there may not even be in relations you know if you think from like a day-to-day -day, like do you even know the folks that you're gonna have to work with to, to liberalize and uh from another real practical political perspective like is it going to is, is it a change that that line ministry may not be in favor of for for whatever other reasons so um there's so to, to and then finally i think it's and i think Premier jason kenny when he was still in power one of the things he talked about was when you're you know i mean my, my thesis is that internal trade needs to be led from the center because it takes so much political will and takes a lot of leadership but when you're a leader and you have 15 fires burning at once internal trade is one of those issues that can rapidly slip down the totem pole in terms of priority because um, it, it sometimes it's harder to be able to prioritize that when you have uh, things that come up from time to time and you have to spend your 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 time and efforts there. Um, internal trade is one of those things that has been an issue since Confederation and will always continue continue to be it. Like we will never get to that perfect point, right? And so, um, as with a lot of other policy issues, I suppose. But the uh, point being, like um we're working where the, the canadian project has been a, a great deal of experimentation especially in the last 30 years with the cfda on how we can move forward and how we can thread that needle between being a, a country that respects provincial autonomy and provincial provincial differences while at the same time you know unlocking growth where we can um and uh, becoming a more competitive economy on the global stage so if there was one thing you would want a reader to take away from your book what would it be it would be that the tale of internal trade in Canada is more dynamic and more complex than sort of the Kumo decision might have suggested. One might think that the state of internal trade has been stagnant ever since, you know, the formation of Canada. But actually, there has been forward progression in the direction of liberalization and also appreciating why it's so difficult to liberalize. It may be simple to say, well, why can't I go buy my beer and my cigarettes on the other side of that border without running afoul of my own province's rules and restrictions on personal consumption. Or, you know, more recently, why is it so difficult to have direct to consumer access of wine from a different province? You know, getting your BC wine shipped to your house in Ontario, why is that so difficult? But realizing that in order to make that possible from like a, a, a systematic perspective, you have to understand that you're going to have to give up 
a little bit of provincial um, uh, autonomy and and um, control in order to make that true. And realizing there's no one right answer, and it really falls onto um, you know a, a set of values like what what are the priorities at that time. So the Donner Prize has been increased to sixty thousand dollars. Please tell me you're not going to blow it all in a boat. <laughs> <laughs> no, gotta go. Gotta go explore the breweries out of province. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, thank you so much for your time and insight, and congratulations again on the Donner Prize win. Thank you very much, Michael. Good to see you again. Ryan Manucha is the 2022 Donner Prize winner for Booze, Cigarettes, and Constitutional Dustups, Canada's Quest for Interprovincial Free Trade. He's a Frederick Sheldon Fellow at Harvard University and an author for the CD Owl. Still to come from the CD Owl Institute, September 12th, General Wayne Iyer, Chief of the Defense Staff of Canada, a roundtable luncheon at the Institute's Toronto headquarters. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.